Susan Sarandon yelling, William Blake, William Blake, William Blake. And Kevin Costner saying, well, now you're just a crazy woman yelling William Blake over and over again, (laughs) which gets quoted a lot in my household because I don't know if anyone listening to this podcast knows this. I was an English major. Wait, this is my first time here about that. Can you believe it, Roddy? I cannot. Are you not stunned? I am not stunned because today is a holiday for Mary Graham and I. It is. Um, And listener, it should be a holiday for you, too. Today is March 15th, also known as the Ides of March. And today is the day in which someone, just this guy who's honestly probably equally as hot as the people who murdered him, if you think about it, you know, just as smart as them. H-O-T. Yes. Yeah. H-O-T-T. Yes. Hot. Yeah. Brutus is just as hot as Caesar. Caesar. Brutus is just as smart as Caesar. Wow. <laughs> Brutus is uh, stereotyped or miscast or misremembered as the 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 word the 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 word that gets extended the adjective from his name is brutish brutal. Brut. No, he was a nerd. <laughs> and you think like everyone pictures Brutus as kind of this monosyllabic football yeah. player. <laughs> You know, hanging out in the wings. Uh-huh. Jeff, I'm terribly worried that you missed the extended reference we just oh, did Oh, he there. totally did. But now my brain is elsewhere, which was we were referencing Mean Girls. That's Mean Girls. That was an but, extended um, Mean Girls bit. You know, Brutus has the opposite of the platonic issue in which Plato actually used to be a uh, wrestler. Um, his his Plato is like, if I'm not mistaken, like almost akin to stone. I am forgetting my ancient Greek. He was the rock before the rock was the rock. But everybody envisioned... Before St. Peter was the rock. Right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, listener, we are going so many places today. But everyone envisions Plato as like this, you know, kind of like frail nerd in like robes or whatever. But it's like, no. Was he like a beefcake He was philosophy? a beefcake. He was possibly like, yeah, he yeah. was just a beefcake doing philosophy. So... There you go. So the opposite Who of Brutus. died and left Aristotle in charge of ethics? <laughs> Plato! <laughs> the best joke in the entirety of The Good Place. All right. See, the thing is, I learned everything about lexicon from Princess Bride. And when I hear about Brutus Mm -hmm. and I know of the Brute Squad, Ah. I just think of him as a as a brute. I'm on the Brute Squad. You are the Brute Squad. Are the Brute Squad. To be fair, the original Brute Squad was just as ineffectual as the Brute Squad in the Princess Bride. (laughs) Because how many people did it take to stab someone 23 times? Uh... Many. Uh, 60 people were originally in on that group project, yeah. although clearly some of them didn't pull their weight on account of only 23 stab wounds. Yes. I just imagine like this mass text going out saying, are you going to be there? Three, <laughs> three o'clock, March 15th, Facebook event. I invited you. Are we all coming? Or, or Brutus like having... <laughs> be what, be a- like calling the union meeting and being like, listen, we're going to need some people to step up for bargaining committee. Oh my goodness. This is important. Did they use knives or daggers? Why? Oh, I, I feel like there's a pun coming. There really isn't. I'm actually just legit curious. And now I can no longer ever ask a question again because no one will ever trust me because it always, everyone always thinks 
Listen, <laughs> there's there's no point to my knife question. <laughs> I'm so bad at We're you. We're so suspicious. Uh, he just said the pun. <laughs> Sorry, I was too busy trying to think of it. Like, it's a beautiful day in the Roman Republic and you are a horrible knife wielder. You are a horrible goose. With right. a knife in your beak, except you know, your it would have taken one goose to stab Caesar. One goose could have ended Caesar without without any weapon. We're have gonna... you met a goose? <laughs> Who would win? The wannabe emperor of Rome or one goose? <laughs> that is not a difficult question to answer. <laughs> Jeff, what are we even talking about today? I'm going to cut all this out. So, uh, you today... always say that and then you never do. No, probably not. You're listening to A Little Too Quiet, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff, and Mary Graham is getting introduced again because Roddy is not ready. Hi. And now Roddy. Hello. That's great. And it is the Ides of March, but you're listening to this at some point in March. Mm -hmm. I assure you, it might be a few days late, but you should know we are in the thick of it. We are right in the Ides of March. But we're not talking about that at all today. We're talking about, you know, we... We started this episode because for the first time ever in Mary Graham's life, she watched a Star War. That's not true. I'd seen the original trilogy. <laughs> I saw the original trilogy in high school because I am not immune to young Harrison Ford. And now, okay, looking fair. back with the full knowledge of myself <laughs> that I was repressing at the time, I'm not immune to Carrie Fisher either. Sure. Sure. We're talking about, well, we, we are going to start talking about Andor, which is the series that came out a year ago. Uh, on Disney Plus, and Mary Graham was already aware of it because Star Wars is everywhere. Uh, I have close relationships with many people who deeply sure. care about Star Wars. Sure, of yes. course. Uh, and Diego, Diego Luna is wonderful, and I'm yes. a big, big fan of his work. Uh, yeah. And I was a big fan of Rogue One, which is a movie that came out where he originated the character. And I said, Mary Graham, you might have already heard this, but this show really reminds me of Les Miserables. There's a there's a there's a Javert character here. There is Space Javert. <laughs> so I guess spoiler alert warning for anyone who has not yet watched Andor. We're probably gonna just ruin the ending. Yep. Right now and today. Yep. So. But it's only it's a two season show, so we're not actually Rogue One will really ruin the ending. So don't watch Rogue here's, One. Well, here's the thing: is that when Rogue One came out, and I heard very good things about it, but. I was in college, didn't have a car, didn't really have a way to get to the movie theater, didn't care that much. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, oh, it's nice that they made a Star War that is good. Um, and then I didn't watch it. And then when I decided to watch Andor, I called up my partner, who's a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, and I was like, should I watch Rogue One first? And he said, no. Um, good answer. And I'm probably going to watch Rogue One before season two comes out because... First of all, I love Felicity Jones. Um, and also, I miss I miss Cashin. I miss him. Yes. Um, but, oh my God. But the great thing, listener, is that even if you too have never deeply cared about a Star War, Andor is a great... You don't have to know much of anything. Like, Mon Mothma came on screen, and I, I was visiting my partner the entire time. Like, we watched Andor completely through together he'd already seen it but um but like mon mothma came on screen and i was like am i supposed to know who she is and my partner was like okay here's all the backstory there mm -hmm. um but even if i had not had him there to be my little star wars encyclopedia on the other end of the couch it would have been totally fine <laughs> so if you're like oh this sounds intriguing but 
I really know nothing about this. I mean, because there's vast amounts of information about Star Wars. Don't let this deter you. You don't have to know what the force... The force does not come into play in the series. There are no Jedi. There are no lightsabers that go voom. Um, And as Glenn Weldon from NPR was very, very happy to note, there is no Tatooine. He is so sick (laughs) of having to go to Tatooine in Star Wars stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, you get a 12-episode... A series about space Moses. Moses in space. Uh, because the more that I think about it, the more parallels between Cassian Andor and Moses uh, I come up with. Here is an incomplete list. Uh, he is taken from his home and his people as a child and raised by a woman of another ethnicity um, with a name that is not indigenous to the culture he was raised in. Uh, He kills a member of law enforcement sort of by accident, but he's not particularly sorry about it. Uh, He comes from a people who make bricks. That is uh, fair. I mean, that's that's more of his adopted people, but that's what Ferrix as a planet does. They make the bricks. Um, He helps engineer the freeing of a large number of people with the help of a body of water. And... He does not want this job, perhaps most importantly, like Moses, he really wishes <laughs> that God slash Luthen would call someone else. But that, them's the breaks. That is not what happens. Um, Let my people go? Is that Moses? Yeah. yeah. So that's really when we're thinking about rebels and yeah. Andor being this quintessential rebel, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Uh, reluctant, but still, yeah. the end goal, let my people go. I mean, that's, you think about um, Narkina 5, which the the most arresting moments of the series for me were the episodes that take place in this labor camp, prison camp, mm-hmm. a concentration camp. Um, and with the, the realization, so much of this show is about the cogs of fascism. Mm-hmm. Um like much of Star Wars is this kind of grand epic adventure. Andor is not. Andor is about <laughs> a kind of cringe guy from a dusty planet right. who works with junk, right. who at one point is arrested and sent to Narkina 5 for walking, for being on the beach at the wrong time. And the Empire sends him to prison for six years for that, mm-hmm. except it's not six years. You're never getting out. And it's at the realization that they're never getting out that that Cassian Andor makes the point of no one is listening. Right. No, what we can plot as freely as we want. They are not listening to us. We are beneath their notice and they do not care. Mm. And that is that is our power in this moment of doing everything we can to free ourselves. And this is why we want to talk about it is as allegories, metaphors, what have you, when they're done right and not and not really done effectively and i don't think it's been done effectively until andor came along into a, a smaller respectable degree rogue one two kind of got that ball rolling yeah because i remember having a conversation with mary graham about star wars and she said it's space fascism and i in the back of my head was aware of that mm-hmm. but george lucas's treatment of it was so all over the place mm-hmm. swashbucklers westerns yes. samurais yeah. religion yadi uh, yeah like uh, i would say the original trilogy 
actually doesn't care about space fascism that much. You know, I have not watched Andor, but I have watched all of the trilogies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the original, the As any... middle, and the most recent. Um, right. No, to be fair, actually, I resolutely stared opposite of the screen when Rise of the Skywalker was playing in the same room as me. So that is the only exception. But I will, like... Just as like a, I haven't watched Andor, but I can also say, yes, you, you that assessment is correct. Um, I mean, and even in our villains episode, I was like, Darth Maul, like changed me as a child, which, you know, I do love that character. Um, I do tend to separate, and I think a lot of people do the Sith from the Empire, mm-hmm. because that is in a sense its own thing. But when you look at Star Wars, you need to look at the empire itself but we get to wrap ourselves up and like yes they're bad but also look at this really cool sith here that we are focused on Ooh, look at count dooku right now this is so cool and it's like yes but they are a part of or tangential to this very fascist regime well that is terrorizing people in andor you get to see so much of the inner workings and at different levels Mm -hmm. so you have cyril karn or as I like to call him, Space Javert, mm-hmm. okay. who is this like quintessential assistant manager has been corrupted by power. Oh. And his introduction is him getting reamed out by his superior for altering his uniform. Because he's he's had it tailored. He's added some piping. It's very Hugo Boss designed the Nazi <laughs> uniforms. I mean, I'm really convinced that that's what it's a, it's a call out to is mm-hmm. that like fascists have good fashion sense on purpose like Mm -hmm. because it's meant to look cool so he is trying to make himself look cooler Mm -hmm. and is you know told by a person higher up than he is what the hell are you doing now you're out of uniform you've gone against regulations Mm -hmm. and then you also have Dedra Miro who's a woman very very high up in the empire who is like (laughs) my notes here say hashtag girl boss fascism Um, because Mm -hmm. so much of her story is about like woman in workplace with men Mm. yes and and also she is trying to accomplish a surveillance state Mm -hmm. like that is what that is what she is trying to do Mm -hmm. um if i remember the series i think the introduction is that she's at sort of a lieutenantish position and there is still men above her who are kind of like well, okay, try this. You can take care of it. Right. Let's do your best. Exactly. Um, Condescendingly. And She takes it very seriously. And eventually you get Cyril kind of like, I'm so eager to see where they go in season two because the place that those two end on is I'm like, this is going to be twisted. Yes. Like he becomes obsessed with her. Mm. I don't even think in a romantic way. Just in a like, but like possibly, well, but possibly, but but because I think he's confusing. Like he doesn't know what it's like to be obsessed with someone romantically versus obsessed with like the role they play in the system that he's devoted to. Like he's also like maybe he's horny for this woman, but mostly he's horny for fascism and law and order. Um, and and she looks at him like he is dirt on the bottom of her shoe. It's like a- they are on the same side, and she's like you're an idiot and a fool and why would I I'm a lieutenant I'm trying to like she is big picture fascisming it so embarrassed for saying this but it's very much like the beginning of a dumb and submissive relationship oh that's not embarrassing at all that's exactly the thought I was like oh okay 
someone desperately wants to be stepped on by this woman in her cool <laughs> trench coat. Like, they're not subtle about it, but he is also obsessed with Cash and Andor. Right. Like, the fact that he's in the story at all is because he's supposed to be investigating the murder of this policeman that Cash and killed. Which gets to the Javert energy. Which really gets to the Javert energy is that he is so focused mm-hmm. <laughs> on this one guy. And eventually, ever I mean, at first his superior is like, oh, we're going to cover this up, dude. Like, okay, so... So we lost a guy. Okay. All right, cost you doing business, and he's like, "No, that's 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 not acceptable. We have everything. to fight. It's the key to everything." And the thing is, it's not. He's really not, especially when he's obsessed with finding Cassian. Cassian has, is at home living with his mother. Exactly. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with living with your mother, but like very much like this guy ain't it. But then by the end of the series, this guy is it. And the sweetest droid you've ever met. The sweetest droid. Has the word emo in his name. Yes. So, really? Yeah, yes. I'm just, sold. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's all you had to say. <laughs> yep. Um, I also love that Andor is leftist infighting the series. Yes. Um, That's the, the episodes three through six really touch into that. Really, really there. touch into that. You have Stellan Skarsgård as, you know, the kind of this recruiter who's not above a nice spot of blackmail to get right. people to join his side. Um, and yeah, occasionally <laughs> you have him meeting up with other uh, rebels, mm-hmm. and you know they're talking they're talking about these these subtle nuances in their approach to things that made me go, oh my God, it's like being at my socialist coalition meeting. <laughs> You've got DSA glaring at PSL, glaring at. <laughs> The Trotskyists, <laughs> you know, and like ultimately we all want the same thing, ultimately. but we're all fighting about how to go about it, which Andor has no patience for. He's like, oh my god, just like we're wasting time. Yeah, uh, let's just go blow something up. Let's go exactly. steal a lot of money. Exactly, um, it's a man of action. Yeah, and and Jeff, I know that something that really struck you mm-hmm. was Fiona Shaw's character. By the way, dear listeners, the cast list of this series mm-hmm. is like. The bench is deep. Forrest Whitaker, we haven't mentioned yet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, and so Jeff, I'm interested in in what you have to say about Fiona Shell's character, especially her sort of final speech. Well, the thing about George Lucas's handling is that he always just said it was all just quick table setting. Like the Empire is here, they're bad. Mm-hmm. And when you rewatch that original trilogy, everything feels like it's already set up. The rebels are already financed, which they aren't in Andor. They already have their ships and what have you. It is just this good versus evil, this little mm-hmm. band of rebels. They have all their jets. They're going to go. Everyone is on the same page. There is no infighting. There's there's no urgency. Um, well, there's urgency. I mean, they do blow up a planet. A planet. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 also like everything's set up even down to the fact that there's one gaping flaw in the Death Star that right. we can exploit. Right. There's like the perfect shot will. The urgency of what Fiona Shaw is the the urgency is to communicate the messaging here. Like folks, mm-hmm. wake up! Space fascism is here. It's literally at your door. Uh, and I guess I had never until I saw her monologue appreciated, and then it was like scary and settling appreciated how the empire is this truly evil force that has their boots on the ground mm-hmm. of every planet not just the planet we're seeing uh and they're invading everyone's lives mm-hmm. and then i was like oh wait i'm talking about a little silly fantasy show on disney 
this has happened in history. Human beings have experienced mm-hmm. this. Why have I never actually been afraid of the empire? It's because it's been because it's never been treated seriously. It's never yeah, been this treated way. seriously uh, until Fiona just. Oh my gosh, what what an amazing actress! And when she says, uh, "It's like a it's like a self eulogy." It's a hologram, yeah. It's because a hologram self eulogy. It's, it's a recording they play at her own funeral. And Whew. the empire has agreed to let them play this recording. And she knows what to do when she's recording it. She's starting off very nice. Hello, mm-hmm. everyone. Thanks for coming. <laughs> and then it escalates. <laughs> I am now a brick. Uh, <laughs> like the funerary rites of this planet are lovely. You're cremated very and lovely. then your ashes are fired into a brick that's mm-hmm. added to like a wall of the dead. And you help like physically build the community. And they have, I guess you could say directly inspired from traditions you would see in New Orleans. There's a parade. There yeah. is music. Yeah, it's a homegoing parade. And that was especially poignant because I don't really feel like I've ever been able to touch into oh every single planet has their own cultures their own traditions mm-hmm. their yep. own religions it's because you spend all your time in Tatooine and these have all been ruined by the Empire yeah mm-hmm. this the fact you have to ask permission for a funeral march in a place where that never would it, you ask permission right mm-hmm. the, you know so uh, I thought she was incredible so um it really drove me out. And, and Stellan Starsgard also gets a monologue two episodes before that. Oh my gosh, which is fantastic. Uh, Where he talks, he talks basically. I mean, in a way, it's it's something of a of a mountaintop speech about I fight for something I never expect to see. That's right. Um, the stakes. They both communicate the stakes to me. Yeah. In a way that I've never experienced before. And then Cassian has that fantastic line: "I would rather die resisting them than die giving them what they want." Which then Andy Circus gets to repeat, mm-hmm. and that's that's when I full on wept. And that's and but that t- that touches into the die on my feet kind of saying. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, shout out to Tony Gilroy, who was the screenwriter for Rogue One, and then who was the showrunner for Andor. Mm-hmm. Uh, who I I did read a couple interviews with him where he was like, "Oh, I had people looking up Star Wars stuff on Wikipedia for me. Like mm-hmm. I was do." He's like, "I have a whole." home library about the Russian Revolution. Like, all of my research was about historical events to base this on, to make sure I was getting the machinations of the politics right. Ah. And I'm like, Tony Gilroy, you genius. That's right. This is why you shouldn't trust George Lucas with things. Right. And this is why you're better at writing allegories than James Cameron with Avatar. But we're not going there yet, Roddy. Roddy was Roddy told me before we started recording that she was going to let us have our Star Wars moments, and Thank I feel you. like we've run our course. I agree. I actually sat and I told Jeff that I would sit here and smile and nod the whole time, and mm-hmm. that is actually literally what I've been doing. It, it is, but now that uh, Jeff has mentioned uh, James Cameron's Avatar, I'm worried that fire is going to come out of your ears no, and ruin your headphones because we are not. So <laughs> <laughs> I am going to keep my myself in check, um, okay. James Cameron avoid me at all costs he must um, he must pay for his crimes yes him and must. andrew lloyd weber but that's another podcast i yes. have heard some hyperbolic stuff about this little film that i don't think a lot of people have seen called avatar from people who have said it's um a statement on uh, the effects of uh, climate change uh, appreciate the earth kind of a thing and, uh, it's not I, special. I grew up watching Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Exactly. 
Or Mononoke. Or Mononoke. Which That's is, our transition. Okay, there we go. <laughs> we got to Miyazaki. So we wanted to talk about Hayao Miyazaki. You might have been wondering, listener, what is Roddy actually doing here? And the question <laughs> is, I mean, the answer is waiting patiently to talk about Miyazaki films. Oh. And now I am going to smile and nod. <laughs> and listener, this is called teamwork. Yes. Absolutely. I would like you to know that I write notes for every podcast, but this is the most notes that I've ever written for any podcast that we've ever recorded. Um, because <laughs> podcast I, listeners at home buckling in. <laughs> I am going to talk about specifically Spirited Away, but we can also bring in elements of his other films in. So Spirited Away as an allegory. So there are very on the nose moments. Um, there will be spoilers in this for Mary Graham as well as I don't the listeners, but it is please watch yep. this movie. It is actually one of my favorite movies ever. So there are spirits. There are spirits. Do they go in the movie? Away? They some of them do. Okay. Um, and so, very many spoiler. of them stay. And they stay because they are caught in the grip of Western capitalism. <gasps> There we go. That is what we need to talk about. So, which is not a, it's again, we're talking about the thing we're talking about today is uh, effective communication of these allegories and how you can be necessarily not so subtle with Fiona Shaw. But this is, this is subtle. Spirit Away is extremely subtle. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you why. So, there, if you've seen the movie over a hundred times as I have, that is not an exaggeration. It stops becoming subtle over time. But I'm gonna give a brief summary. So you have this young uh, girl, her name is Chihiro. She is moving away from her childhood home. She's 10. So her childhood home, school, et cetera, it's implied that her parents found a new house, got a new job. And so they're moving far away to this place. They are driving to their new home. Um, they get kind of sidetracked, go down this road that is the wrong road that stops right outside of this like shrine statue. They walk inside, it looks like a train station um, and they keep going and it opens to this open field that they walk across and there's like, it's almost like a carnivore festival sort of town and they kind of walk through like, is this deserted? And then they smell food. Her parents immediately start eating the food and are like, oh, we'll just pay for it later. And then the sun starts to set. Chihiro is like, we really should not have gone in here. We need to go home. She has been dubious the whole time. Smart. Realizes that stuff is happening. Capital S stuff. And she's like, okay, let's go. Goes to get her parents. They have turned into pigs because they were eating so ravenously. Um, Capitalist freaking out. This mysterious boy with colorful hair named Haku comes and feeds her something and is like, okay, I'm going to get you into this bathhouse as an employee. You just need to go through these particular machinations, etc. I'm very like roughly summarizing what's going on. She ends up in the bathhouse, meets Yubaba, who owns the bathhouse. The bathhouse is in a very traditional Japanese Eastern style. Yubaba is not. She is dressed in Western clothing. That is very important. She changes to Chihiro's name to Sin and tells her that she can work in the bathhouse. And basically, Chihiro is trying to work to free herself and her parents to return home. Um, and over time, she does manage to do that um, while learning a lot along the way. <laughs> that is the rough, spoiler free summary. Now I'm getting into spoilers. So essentially, Yubaba represents Western capitalism. That is why she's in Western clothing. She is very much about where there's my money. Like everything is about money. 
And so when Chihiro demands a job from her, she is required to give her one because that's like a contract with her magic. And she changes Chihiro's name to Sin. And the Chinese character for Sin literally translates to 1000 um, in uh, Chinese characters, if I'm not mistaken, which is actually just basically an employee number. So her identity is stripped away in losing her name. And also she starts to forget her name until Haku reminds her of what her name is. So this is all very important. So I'm gonna now take everyone down a little history of economics lesson for Japan. Um, in the 80s, much like in other areas of the world, Japan experienced this like big economic bubble where like things were looking great. You know, capitalism seemed to be the way to go. People were making lots of money. And then in 1992, that bubble burst real hard. And it is considered like the lost decade because it lasted from 92 to 2002 and Spirited Away came out in 2001. And there is even when they walk through the uh, train station into the spirit world, essentially, her father has this throwaway line like, oh, this must be one of those amusement parks that they built in the early 90s. And then the economy collapsed and they all went out of business and got abandoned. And like he literally actually watched the Japanese and the English versions to make sure that this was directly translated. And it was he directly acknowledges it. But that is once again, a throwaway line at the beginning of the movie. So the way that Miyazaki sort of incorporates this throughout the film is like, yes, you have Yubaba, who's very obviously a capitalist. You have all of these spirits working in the bathhouse under her who obviously have these lofty dreams of one day leaving, literally buying train tickets to go somewhere, anywhere, but here, essentially. And then you have these little other moments where there's this spirit that they think is a stink spirit. He's sludgy, he's disgusting. He smells so bad that someone is walking with fresh food and it rots in the bowl that it's in. And he's gross, but they're like, okay, we have no choice but to serve him. Hopefully he will pay us because we can't get rid of him. A lucrative client. A very potentially lucrative client. So they don't like Chihiro because she's human and they all know that she's human. So they're like, oh, she's gonna take care of this client. So she's doing her best. There's this other spirit named No Face that she let into the shrine, uh, the bathhouse. She wasn't supposed to do that. We'll get to that later. Um, and he helps her steal bath tokens to get like the special washes and things like that. So she's doing her best and then she touches the spirit's side, sludgy side, and she feels what she thinks is a thorn. And then Yubaba of course is like, hmm, interesting potential for money here. And so literally the entire bathhouse gets involved in pulling this thorn out of the spirit's side, but it's actually the handle of a bicycle because as they continue to pull, all of this like waste comes out of the spirit and you realize that it is a water spirit who has been polluted. It's a river spirit. Um, and so he flies off quite literally because oftentimes water spirits, rivers, etc., are represented by dragons. So he is essentially an Eastern style dragon. He flies off, leaves gold everywhere. So very lucrative, very like Yubaba is like, yes, ours, this is what we wanted. And it is both a mark on like 
yes, capitalism, but also now we get into pollution and things like that. Because Haku, also spoiler alert, Haku is not Haku's actual name. His full name is Kohaku. He is also a river spirit. He lost his identity because the river that he represents was filled in for land development. So it's about the natural world, how capitalism and greed kind of pollute and destroy and erase the identity of the natural world, which are things that we see all the time anyway. (laughs) And it's just, it's so well done and it's so discreet. And I love that movie so much. And I have so much that I could continue to say about it. But um, that is, I mean, No Face is a very popular character. If I showed you a picture of that character, you would probably recognize him. Has literally a mask for a face, no voice until he starts to consume other spirits and they allow him to take on a voice in a more, I don't want to say corporeal form, but at the same time, yes. Um, He literally grows as he consumes people as almost like a direct representation of capitalism. Who would have thunk? Um, At the end of the story, Chihiro does pass the test that Yubaba places in front of her of picking out her parents from a group of pigs, essentially to say, oh, these are my family. And they do get to return home. And it is about losing one's identity in the face of greed and the constant striving for economic gain. It is about... I mean, to an extent, I am not a Japanese historian. I am also not an economist, so this is my opinion. But it is, in a way, about a nation losing its identity while pursuing this more Western ideal, aka capitalism, and, you know, what that did for the fabric of Japanese society. So you have this, like... There are a lot of Western studies specifically who were like, yes, that lost decade was horrible for Japan. And, you know, and it was. I don't want to like downplay that. But if you talk to a lot of Japanese historians or look at their economists who do studies of that time, they're like, yeah, that was a bad time financially. But you know what? Uh, Older people, women and children reported that they were much happier during that time because to counteract the effects of that economic downturn, we invested a lot into social welfare. And so (laughs) we, I don't know, just were like, hmm, what if we take care of the people? And that happiness, the people who reported like, oh no, like I did not personally feel or the the what are the words I'm looking for the statistics that showed that there was no downturn in like personal happiness during that time um it was the opposite during the 80s and during the economic boom and all that fun stuff and it's just like yeah how much more on the nose can we possibly get but I am just seeing the very very quiet parts out loud when you are watching this movie That is not the most evident thing. Also, I think this movie has one of the sweetest, purest love stories ever told. Um, I'm going to read a quote from the movie because it makes me cry every time when I watch it. I'm not going to cry now. But Haku says this after he wakes up from like um, he was really injured and he kind of like lost consciousness. And Chihiro went off to go try to find a way to help him. And she he says... Um, as he wakes up, I remember being in darkness. Then I could hear Sin's voice, Chihiro's voice, calling out my name. So I followed her voice. And next thing I knew, I was 
lying here feeling better than ever. And it's just like, please, <laughs> Miyazaki, please. This is the sweetest, most purest love ever in a movie. And I love it so much. And I weep every time. But yeah, that is the <laughs> short version of all of my notes about <laughs> Spirited Away. Listeners can confirm, Roddy is crying. I'm and, not crying. <laughs> you know, similarly, when I was watching Stellan Skarsgård's monologue or Fiona mm -hmm. Shaw's monologue, I had that uh, Hugh Jackman gift from the from the fountain, like tears yeah. welling. I can't believe what I'm what I'm hearing. Yeah, so and great. there's also this moment where Chihiro reminds she is the one who reminds Kohaku of his name because when she was a small child, she fell into the Kohaku River mm -hmm. and his spirit saved her and brought her to shore. And she had like a flashback earlier in the movie and they're like flying through the sky as they're heading back to the bathhouse. And she's like, by the way, I remember your name, Haku. Your name is Kohaku after the Kohaku River. And you literally watch the scales because he's in his dragon farm fall off of him. And they're just kind of like floating through the sky in a slight free fall, but you know, they're not in danger. And he's just so happy to have his name back. It reclaims his identity and it also frees him of his contract in the shackles of Yubaba so that he can now stand for himself and be his own person again because he had signed over his name when he signed a contract with her like that's huge sorry we i mean it's precedent on this podcast that uh roddy is fascinated with contract law uh also get, getting the vibe that you kind of like spirited away i love this vibe. movie i'm probably me, gonna watch it again as soon as i get off work mary graham have you seen a miyazaki I have seen Kiki's Delivery Service. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and I've read Howl's Moving Castle, but not seen the film. Um, then I would wonder, because I have not read the book, but I've seen the film. Mm -hmm. And uh, You've mentioned identity a lot, and I wanted mm -hmm. to kind of basically repeat that, but slightly expand it. Mm -hmm. I think Miyazaki is concerned with loss of humanity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's why I'm always fascinated by how insistent he is to have the presence of encroaching industry. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of sequences in Howl's Moving Castle that would recall uh, Ozu's Tokyo story where you just see a train cutting through uh, the countryside. Mm -hmm. In fact, I almost feel like that would be a dangerous drinking game if you did with Miyazaki when you just see a train <laughs> cutting through. And uh, what happens in Housemoley Castle is you have this quiet, quaint, super cute village. Mm -hmm. A train is coming in and then war machines are coming in and then industry, industry, industry and fire and war. I don't know if war was such a big part of the book or not, but... I would say war, yes. Industry, not quite so okay. much, although there is uh, Sophie, a uh, little union organizer in training, but she doesn't know it yet, um, you oh, know, sure. is, is very concerned about being exploited. And uh, I love her. Yeah. Um, See, the way that Miyazaki tends to do it, and this is also like 
Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away are both after Princess Mononoke, if I'm remembering correctly. So in Princess Mononoke, you get literally, it is quite literally industry, industrialism versus nature. Like that's, that's pretty much the movie. And so- And who really are the beasts? who really are the beasts and the imagery the like style i mean yes it's also miyazaki style but that stylization is so strong through the rest of the movies that he has that even in Howl's moving castle like when you see the regular everyday people they are going about doing regular everyday things it is the people with magic it is the people at war who have the big machines and the bombs and the warships and things like that like it's not like you're seeing some small child playing with like a robot contraption. Like that is very much in, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Like an engine of warfare mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Howl in the movie is uh, startlingly depicted as becoming a monster uh, and is tied into mm-hmm. the state of the castle itself. Uh, also, he's just kind of a jerk. Uh and so I would say, again, a loss of humanity, he becomes a monster. The pigs in Spirit of the Way. Yes. Uh, the warfare that you see on display in Princess Mononoke. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to watch Howl's Moving Castle now because this is so <laughs> to the like sideways from the book. So, like I can see how they got there, but the book, the book is much more about... Uh, like Howl potentially like having to defuse a war because he jilted a witch. Like it's very personal. Yes. It's 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 much less, he, you know, kind of like kingdoms and more just like this Welsh doctoral candidate yes. was procrastinating so much on his dissertation that he found an alternate universe, moved there, and became a wizard. And sometimes he comes home to play rugby and see his nephew. Right. And like Sophie coming with him is like, what is this magical land land called Wales? And he's like, it's just Wales. It's just, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know, like you learn that his name is Howell, like H-O-W-E-L-L. And I, I would recommend watching it. It the jilted witch is in there, of course. Of course. Um, it is about Howell, who is a draft dodger. Oh, in the book, it's tax evasion. Yes. So he is still So I feel like that tells you everything you have to know about the two. I've also heard it described as the book is if Sophie is telling the story and the movie is if Howell is telling the story. Yes. Um, So that I, my friends who have all read the book, love the movie and just take it as that. Yeah. What you just said, because Howell's Movement Castle is, in my opinion, one of, you know, Miyazaki's best movies a great score not as great as spirited away fair but so this is a personal argument that jeff and i have been having sorry but it it is miyazaki saying okay we are actually going to lean into the war side of all of this um it's startling imagery there are warships there's firestorms it's just intense and you see it happening literally raining down on the everyday people it's not like you see the war from the perspective of the soldiers on the battlefield you see it from the perspective of the civilians that are caught in the midst of all of this and say that their humanity is being 
disrespected. Yes. And disregarded entirely. Yes. Loss of humanity. And it's also the way that it's displayed is not like people fighting the war. It is literally like magic, magically manifested beings who are committing this violence against these just everyday people. I say beings because monstrosities. Yes, monstrosities. Monstrosities. So, so I think I have now decided that my favorite Miyazaki film, I had it at number two. I am now switcherooing, mm-hmm. and I am now moving Porco Rosso up to number one, oh. which also touches on loss of humanity, yes, war, toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. It has a pig. Who is the real man after all. Who is the real man. It is. But it's also this great uh, point that's made about uh, the overglorification of war. Mm-hmm. There's a character in the dubbed version. You get to hear the voice of Carrie Elwes doing this voice, who is a glory hound and thinks war is the greatest thing ever and wants to just be the best pilot. Yes. And you have Porco, who's probably on the verge of becoming a full-on pacifist and doesn't mm-hmm. believe in war anymore and it in the movie it's supposed to be right after World War One, mm-hmm. uh, but it comes out in the early 90s and Miyazaki was like hey look the uh, Gulf War is starting up right now we have to be mindful of how horrible war is I think yes. you are losing sight of this that frankly also reminds me of Tolkien, mm-hmm. because it's for someone who hasn't actually managed to get through all the Lord of the Rings books, Lord, do I know a lot about Jonathan, Ronathan, Rolkin, Tolkien, um, and including the fact that like you'll you'll notice sometimes that like when he wants to describe uh, landscape bad or something terrible happened here, he talks about how there are no trees, mm-hmm. like no trees can grow here. And when you remember that he served in the First World War. And you look at photos of like mm-hmm. where the Battle of the Somme took place, like completely deforested. Or he'll he'll talk about, you know, like there's trenches everywhere. Like that yeah. man was like, Yeah, I have exactly. been to this place. I'm slapping my forehead and listeners, they're both looking at me and wondering why. I just remembered that George Lucas once clumsily attempted to say that Star Wars A New Hope was some sort of reaction to the Vietnam War. And I have to imagine that he's suggesting that the rebels are the North Vietnamese and the empire is America. That is what I have heard that too. And I feel like that is the general understanding of what he intended. But is, this that is, 77. The way that, is that the way that people understand it today? Absolutely not. not. No. I mean, if you, think, if you think about how people talk about a lot of these things just to take it back to star wars everyone wants to be a jedi not me everyone wants to like they are like everybody wants to fly an x-wing we are the jedi i'm using the force i'm doing all of these things and i hate to sound like the person who calls people sheep but for the most part most people are actually clones like Mm -hmm. they are born into this system they don't they literally can't recognize or or you're casting andor out on a planet that the Empire simultaneously yes. doesn't care about, but is also happy to crush. I like, mean, yes. The same way that colonized. I think about how 85% of uh, medieval people were peasants, and so we should all be writing more historical novels about peasants, please. Mm-hmm. That's ge- genuinely fascinating. Please give it to me. It's like, yeah, the majority of people are brick builders on Ferrix or, yes. you know, d- d- just, just doing something else. And what I... <laughs> I kept turning to my partner while we were watching Andor, and I was like... 
it's good. It's good, right? It's good. It's too good. It's too, it's too good. Like it's too politically aware. It's too <laughs> nuanced. It is, you would never mistake, like there's a scene towards the end of the season that has to do with like the riots surrounding Marva, Fiona Starr's character's funeral. And there's a, a young man who's been peripheral for most of the series, but he's the, he's the child of, you know, the man who runs the junkyard who's been tortured by the Empire. And this kid lobs a bomb mm-hmm. across the line into the Imperial forces. And nobody is ever like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have blown apart the Imperial people. No, you're a fascist. You get a bomb thrown at your face. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the narrative of Andor is like, yes. Mm-hmm. So don't be a fascist and we won't throw a bomb at your face. Yes. And whereas I'm not sure you would get that level of nuance in the original trilogy. No, you wouldn't. And I mean, I... So here's the thing. And Jeff... I'm just going to take it back to Miyazaki really quick, too. Jeff just told me what Guillermo del Toro said. I was just about to say, I'm thinking of Guillermo so much during this conversation. Because that man also hates faster than Guillermo, we love you. you. We love you so much. Because Pinocchio. Please please come on the podcast. Pinocchio, I wept through that entire movie. Oh, my gosh. I was a faucet. I was just, my eyes would not stop leaking. And... Guillermo del Toro, I looked at Maurice while we were watching it together and I looked at him and I said, finally, someone other than Andor apparently, who's not afraid to say the quiet part out loud. I was like, you cannot mistake what this movie is about. You cannot. Guillermo does not allow for that, which is why I respect him so much as a director. Because what did he say during his acceptance speech that well, what animation. he made sure to drive home is that animation is cinema. It is not a genre. Right. Yes. And this is one thing that um, I tend to like about, you know, typically foreign animators, foreign directors specifically, is that they treat animation not as like, okay, this is for children or like this has to be watered down. If you ask me, I don't think any of Miyazaki's films are watered down. I think that his metaphors are settled, but that does not make them unsophisticated. They're just subtle metaphors, which, you know, as you grow, you will grow into understanding them better. Um, Guillermo, same deal. Not subtle with Pinocchio, but he still is writing a movie for that not is not just for a younger audience, but speaks to a younger audience. And I feel like that is something that um, more adult films or like films that are just not even remotely accessible to children, they don't achieve that nuance. They don't know how to balance on that line. And that is why I tend to really laud animation in terms of like filmmaking because these directors, Miyazaki, Guillermo, like, and I can think of a ton of other Japanese directors off the top of my head. They are, they know what they are doing. And I just, yeah. Sorry. Well, and this is one it. of the reasons why The Prince of Egypt is one of my top three films of all time, because despite the fact that it's by an American animation studio yes. and an American team, because of the subject matter, because, you know, as they say in the, in the kind of title card that runs before the actual film starts. Mm-hmm. They're like, we are aware that this is a story that is 
deeply, deeply central to at least three faiths. Yes. Like global religions. Yes. A huge amount of people who live on this planet take this story very seriously. And so while we have taken some dramatic liberties in the adaptation thereof, it's treated with such respect mm-hmm. that even though... I mean, I, in talking with some of my Jewish friends about it, we're like, oh, this is the one thing that like Jewish kids handshake Christian kids watching this story in oh. Sunday school, like watching yes. this movie. Like every time. If there was a movie day at my Catholic school, yeah. it was so likely that we were watching The Prince of Egypt. When my religion teacher in sixth grade was like, too tired, movie, always Prince of Egypt. And it, we were always delighted to it watch is it. Genuinely one of my favorite films. But it holds up so beautifully. It does. As an adult because it's not it's it's adapting it's just adapting a story it's Mm -hmm. a story that children get told a lot because if you are raised religious like your community will start telling you the stories that are important to your Mm -hmm. religion when you are very small um but it's a beautiful beautiful example of animation is a medium not a genre and i think that that's why it's because of the animation so much more compelling a rendering of that story than something like the Ten Commandments. I mean, sorry, Jeff. I know you've been waiting for so long to say something, but I just have to remark really quick about the Prince of Egypt. That sequence that is entirely animated in hieroglyphs of Moses having the nightmare about the the law that was set in place about newborn babies being, you know, thrown into the river fed to crocodiles. There's no dialogue. There is no dialogue in that moment. It is just music and animation. And it is one of the best sequences in a film in terms of storytelling ever. Just point blank. Okay. First and foremost, no need for talking gargoyles in this movie. God. Prince of Egypt, no need for talking gargoyles. Uh, Pinocchio is doing what Prince of Egypt is doing is it's not condescending to the audience. And when I think of talking gargoyles, I think of some of the other missteps that Disney Plus shows have made when it comes to Star Wars and over-reliance on Tatooine or this this compulsory need to check all the boxes mm-hmm. and throw all the Jedi magic at you. And I do respect how Tony Gilroy was like, F off with your talking gargoyles. I'm not doing, I don't have time for talking gargoyles. I have points to make. Yeah. Uh, where else was I going? Also, to go back to Star Wars. <laughs> I think it's very telling about what kind of story George Lucas wants to tell because it's in the end, it's a glorification of war, which is something Miyazaki would never do because Mm -hmm. the end result is I'm going to shoot this laser into this porthole and it's going to explode and we're going to be applauding when the explosion happens Mm -hmm. versus Tolkien, who basically just says, in order to win, we just have to throw jewelry off a cliff. So, but okay, my well, God, it's going to be a problem to get to the cliff. So, but, but the thing, about, <laughs> the thing, why did the thing with that? the thing with Andor is that the Andor is also about basically on the necessity of taking up arms. Yes, right. and that's and and people have the right to resist annihilation. You right. know, sort of Gandhian politics do not work in this in this world. And I think that ultimately, it makes a very persuasive case for if the only way to get a fascist out of my town is to throw a bomb into their ranks, we're right. throwing a bomb into their ranks. Right. Because otherwise, they're going to put us in prison camp and murder us all. Right. I have to also just remark about the general things that you just said. I know that we're running out of time. But we also have Bell to... Yeah. I am going to try to summarize this as people. quickly as I can, which is that 
America versus everywhere else and when it comes to how we portray war. For example, one of the most commonly used examples is, you know, after World War II for Japan and the United States. When we think of radioactivity, we make superheroes. When they, you know, portray it, we get kaiju, we get monsters. Um, England in warfare, same deal. We get, (laughs) I mean, Vietnam and World War I are different, but they have trench warfare they have you know deforestation we have what on earth do we have we have d-day we have we have we we went over and fought the best war ever and we keep saving everyone's butts and we don't really even think about world war one because it didn't happen over here i was in the united kingdom for the 100th anniversary of the start of World War One, mm-hmm. and went to a couple of commemoration events for it because that's part of why I was there. Um, you could have gone to some of those church services and walked out not knowing who won the war. Yes. You you wouldn't know that you were at a memorial service in a country that won. Yes. Because they were like, Solemn. this destroyed us. Exactly. Yeah. And then we don't have that particular history. The We don't have large-scale international wars being fought on American turf. We have our Revolutionary War. I think we have a little bit in 1812. Yeah, you have um, the Civil War. And, and we have the Civil War, which is us against, it's literally the brother against brother war. And that is why our frame of reference is always just like oh america we have to stay together because this most the most terrible thing that we have ever experienced was us fighting each other over slavery which is such a settler mindset because actually there were many small wars fought here to kill the people whose land this is because that is what that is how we look at warfare versus everyone else so when we look at the words of that sketch are we the baddies yes we are and so when we look at these allegories when we look even even george lucas trying so hard to be like oh this is about the vietnam war or us looking at you know miyazaki films and us watching all of these movies because of the history in this country especially because of the sort of like what's the word i'm looking for watered down is what i'm going to use way that we are taught our history we don't have the frame of reference to look at these events in a sophisticated manner if there's anyone who needs to have this stuff spoon fed to them it's us which is why (laughs) pinocchio i was like which is why we celebrate andor and pinocchio and to an extent you know miyazaki for honestly saying the quiet parts out loud because we're like Oh, we had never heard those quiet parts at all in the first place. And we so, had this much Star Wars. Yes. And we did not hear we, those quiet parts. Yeah. It, they were there the whole time. If there. you go back after watching Andor, which I'm going to have to do now, um, it's not an aversion to Star Wars. It's an aversion to television, listener. Mm-hmm. But I will do it anyway. If I go watch Andor and I go back and rewatch all of Star Wars or as much of it as I can handle, Rise of Skywalker, I will see all of these quiet parts or I will see all of the areas, all of the gaps where these things would have been that I probably wouldn't have noticed as, well, I know I wouldn't have noticed it as a child, but like in the way that we talk about Star Wars up to this point. And (sighs) heavy sigh is where I will end. (laughs) Where I would like to end is... Art is political, and it is not frivolous. Listener, especially if you are in the United States, perhaps you will watch Andor and look around and say, gosh, those uh, law enforcement movements, just even the way that they walk down streets, look 
scarily familiar. I feel like I've seen that on TV, Mm -hmm. um, on the news in my own home. And part of art is holding up a mirror Mm -hmm. uh, and is to help us recognize when it is happening to us. Right. Because it is happening to us. And that's why I think del toro takes his job so seriously which Mm -hmm. he should yeah um and why his art is so good and i think it's why andor is good and i personally recommend the uh shot chaser combination of andor and then the prince of egypt yeah um but yeah pay attention to these to these things in the art that makes your brain go and then pay attention (laughs) to what you are seeing around you yeah i mean just one last thing because we are lucky here to have so many frame of references like I mean I'm thinking about where I was raised and who I was raised by and I was like oh yeah I was just basically raised by like black revolutionaries in Compton, California like of course I'm like oh yeah I'm lucky enough to like oh I could see where that's coming from because you know I had that background but like if you are just a general person like who especially doesn't necessarily come from, I mean, good luck finding someone, but from a place that America or the UK has not colonized because you are native to either of those places or not native to America. But anyway, if you are like from those places, then you wouldn't notice these things. Whereas, you know, I probably will watch Andor and be like, oh yeah, really to Cassian quite a bit actually. Yeah, I mean, actually, I mean, I do have to say, Space Moses, not original to me, original to a friend of mine who is Jewish and watched Andor and went, mm-hmm. it's our guy. Yeah. It's our, it's maps quite well onto our guy. <laughs> right. And, and that's, I love art. God, I love storytelling. And this is, d- d- to, to bring it back to the intellectual freedom of it all, because librarian, this is why they're frightened. This is why... Mm-hmm. They want those books off shelves mm-hmm. because somebody, it's not just about the gay kid looking at the book and saying, that's me. Although it is definitely about that. It's also about people looking at these books and going, wait a minute. Wait a minute, dot, dot, dot. Where have I seen this before? Where have I seen this before? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, what does this remind me of in my own of? life? If I'm able to see very clearly in this Jonathan Rolkin Tolkien book mm-hmm. that the places where trees go with trenches dug mm-hmm. are the aftermaths of war and maybe we shouldn't be invading Iraq. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which like as a six year old I was like maybe we shouldn't be invading Iraq. Listen. <laughs> Star Wars is always always about in space and ships zooming around. Andor is on the street. Yeah. And the mm-hmm. minute that you're yeah. like, oh, hold on. If Where we if we before? take away the space part of space fascism, we just have fascism. Yes. I can do a keyword search for that in my library catalog. And I can find quite a lot of books that are going to make me go, hmm. And the books that make you go, hmm, is what frighten the people that don't yes. want you to read the books. Yes. We were here today to celebrate the art that made us go, hmm, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully... Uh, well, so we'll have a list of everything we talked about in the show notes. That's mm-hmm. where we're going to leave it for now. Another fantastic uh, clinic put on by Roddy and Mary Grant. Thank you both so much. It's fantastic. You both have your notes out. It's fantastic. 
Uh, you've listened to another episode of A Little Too Quiet, and I appreciate that. There you go. You've gone and done it. <laughs> you wasted another perfectly good hour listening to Car Talk. We appreciate it so much. Uh, remember to rate, review, subscribe, leave a comment. It would help us find more listeners. Of course, shout out to the friends of the Ferndale Library that made this podcast a reality. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening.